Hi, I'm Desiree. Hi, I'm Beth. We're two friends whose paths serendipitously cross, searching for our own healing from chronic illness. While our journeys are uniquely our own, what we've learned is that healing lies in the process of forgetting who we were taught to be and remembering who we always were. Even though this journey can feel impossible, it's also an invitation into the greatest gift one can ever receive. So we're here to remind you that you're not alone. In the depths of chronic illness, we can choose to grow community built on love and grace. These stories are the medicine we hope to share with you in this podcast as we explore what it means to be in the process of 100% healing. Okay, so I am really excited to have my friend and colleague Jackie Taylor on the podcast today because we are going to be talking about boundaries. Really wanted to have an expert come on our show to share some wisdom around this topic because it's just so vital to becoming a truly healthy human. And for me personally, I think I could probably speak for you too, Desiree, like poor boundaries Absolutely. really became a variable. Yeah. And how we developed chronic illness in the first place. So we're just so honored to have Jackie on the show because she knows a lot about boundaries and doesn't just talk the talk. She has walked the walk. So Jackie is a licensed professional counselor specializing in trauma and dysfunctional family systems. And like all good healers, she has her own experience participating in healing herself and her family system. So she began her career as a therapist 12 years into her marriage after she and her husband engaged a two-year journey of recovery from trauma, addiction, and codependency. Um, and they're now happily married and are soon going to celebrate their 20th anniversary, which is really amazing. They have successfully broken the dysfunctional family patterns with their own children, who are now 16 and 18, and hope to work together in the future, helping others do the same. So... Jackie, we're so very glad to have you. And let's just kick it off. If you could tell us a little bit about your own healing journey and the role that boundaries played. Sure. Um, well, thank you for having me. I'm um, honored to be a part of this today. My own story kind of began in childhood. Um, I grew up in a home that was plagued with addiction. My dad was an alcoholic and an addict to narcotics before the whole opiate crisis was was even on the map in the 90s. Um, it was affecting our family. But I didn't know that. I didn't realize that I didn't know anything about addiction. My mom was the classic codependent, rescuing enabler, keep the peace. I didn't think it had affected me until I was an adult and in a marriage with an alcoholic. I didn't realize he was an alcoholic. Um, so about a decade into our marriage, I landed in kind of a long story how I got there, but I landed in this intensive outpatient program, which is IOP intensive outpatient program is three hours a day, three days a week for three months for anxiety. And I didn't really think I needed to be there. I thought my husband's a problem, not me. He's the problem. So I started learning in this program about my own, about addiction and my own childhood trauma in addiction which is one aspect of the beginning of my healing. But I also started learning about this thing called boundaries. And the therapist who was leading this IOP kept talking about this thing called boundaries. And I finally just said, I don't understand. How do you have boundaries with someone who you're not supposed to have boundaries with? Because growing up in a very conservative Christian environment, I thought my role as a wife was to basically make sure my husband was always happy. Well, that's hard to do when you're living with active addiction. <laughs> 
so I was really confused. And, and she said, yeah, I disagree with that. You have to have boundaries with everybody, your, your friends, your spouse, your parents, your children. They look different for different relationships, but you have to have them with everyone. And I said, I don't understand. What does that look like? I mean, what does that even functionally look like? So she referred me to a book called Boundaries and by Cloud and Townsend. It's actually one of many Boundaries books. And she said, read the one about marriage boundaries in marriage. So I said, okay. And it's biblically based. There's a lot of scripture that supports the concepts that they're teaching. So, and of course that was my, my worldview. So I ate it up. I tore it up. I highlighted it, underlined, I took notes and I started doing it. I started doing the deal and it did not go over well. (laughs) It didn't like it. The hardest thing about setting boundaries and learning to say no to unacceptable behavior is the pushback because people who've never heard no are not going to like it when you start saying no and standing up for yourself and being honest about your limits. Um, so it didn't go well at first, but it took about three months. And he finally said, okay, I think I need some help too. And I said, what are you going to do about it? Because that's your side of the street, not mine. But I can tell you what I'm going to do if you don't do something. So learning how to, um, how to uh, enforce the consequence of distance when you've communicated boundaries and they're not being honored. So there's a difference between boundaries and consequences. And that's a a lot of the the pushback, especially in the Christian culture, is that boundaries are mean and unkind. It's not loving and it separates us. And and I argue, and when I was in my master's program, I was at a a seminary and a lot of the theology professors didn't approve of boundaries. And that was their argument but they're mean and unkind and unloving and they separate us. And I'm like, no, actually it's the, the consequence of distance that separates us when boundaries are violated. The problem isn't the boundaries, it's the boundary violations. And then the consequences, the distance is the consequence of boundary violations. So there's a lot of confusion about the difference between boundaries and consequences. Boundaries are just simply your limits. And it starts with your internal world. It starts with knowing yourself and knowing your own truth. And that's really what boundaries are, is what are your limits? What is your truth? What do you want? What do you not want? What do you need? How do you feel? What do you believe? Because that is yours and no one can take that from you. So a lot of times when we talk about boundaries, we have to back up and help you discover yourself and your own truth because you cannot communicate what you want and don't want if you don't even know it within yourself. But we learn as a child to sacrifice your own truth. You never really even discover your own sense of self and what do I want and who am I and who would I want to be and how do I feel and what do I need and we're taught at a young age That if we're honest about that, we don't receive love. So we have to choose between owning my truth or receiving love. And so not only do I have to sacrifice my own truth, but I have to really, I'm responsible for your feelings and what you want and making sure that you're happy. Because if you're not happy, then mama's not happy. No one's happy, right? (laughs) So we don't let our kids learn what it means to have the freedom to say no and to have your own truth. And we don't learn that it's healthy to give people the freedom 
to give our children the freedom to have their own thoughts and feelings and beliefs and wants and not wants. And that's really the foundation of trust is the freedom to have your own truth. So if you don't allow me that freedom, I need to protect myself by being distant. But a child can't do that. A child has to choose between love and their own truth. I grew up in that environment. Many of us did. And that's what a dysfunctional environment is, is when you can't own your truth. And you learn, don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. I'm not going to confront things that need to be confronted. And I'm not going to be honest about how I feel about things that have happened that I can't talk about. And really what I've learned is that I can't trust anyone else or I can't trust me. One or the other. We don't learn healthy discernment. So it really all starts in those very developmental childhood years. Family dysfunction usually starts in childhood. And it's generational patterns that are taught over and over. So for me, I kind of went back into my own childhood <laughs> in, in my own IOP program and started learning what is boundaries. I was never taught that. Well, our kids need to learn that. And they need to learn when it's appropriate to say no and set boundaries and when it's not, when it's actually safe to be vulnerable and connect instead. What happens is when we don't really know, if we don't learn healthy discernment, we end up being vulnerable when it's not safe and setting boundaries with people when it is safe and we should be vulnerable. So we get that reversed. So we've got to switch it back. And first, what is trust? Trust tells us when it's safe to be vulnerable and when it's not safe and we need boundaries. But part of trust is do I have the freedom to own my truth? Yeah, and it feels like trusting yourself is a big piece of that. And it, and it just sounds like the way you're describing that, it's such a recipe for chronic illness. You know, this idea that like, I don't have my own truth. I'm trying to get love. I'm trying to kind of see what the other person needs me to be and to bend into that. And Desiree will talk a lot too about, you know, some of the, church hurt or religious trauma and that pain that can come and even hearing that that happened in a in a seminary where it's like no you you can't have boundaries like the organization that represents you know what's supposed to be a really safe experience with God and saying no you're not allowed to trust yourself you're not allowed to have your own boundaries and feelings um which it makes so much sense why a little kid would struggle with that when no one's teaching them how to do that and they believe this is how I get loved Right, right. And it's usually, if you look at the you know, childhood development, those single digit years is when a child receives God's unconditional love in a very experiential, tangible way from mom and dad who kind of represent that unconditional, I would die for you kind of love. So the first decade of our lives are when we really experientially receive love from God because kids can, can know God's love. But knowing and understanding are not the same thing. I can teach you how to drive a car or ride a bike, but until you've actually experienced it and experienced the feeling of the car or the bike turning when you turn the handlebar, and I mean, who's going to put their 16-year-old kid behind the wheel having never driven with and given them a license? It just doesn't work that way. Experiencing God's love doesn't come from knowledge. Understanding God's love comes from experiencing it through the parents who model God's love 
And then of those double digit years is when they actually begin to embrace the love they've received to begin loving themselves and trusting themselves to love others, to risk loving others. And those middle school years are the most difficult for parents and kids because they're developmentally pulling away from mom and dad and, and looking for belonging somewhere else. And it's so important to be there, but not be there as a parent because we have to be there as guides then help them learn who is safe to trust in their life. And when, you know, your best friend does this thing, we can help that child make sense of it and respond to it in a healthy way. That's an opportunity to help them learn discernment and who to trust and when not to trust. And boundaries are necessary when someone shows you that they are not worthy of trust, that they're not trustworthy. So we're helping them learn in those middle school years I mean, I've really experienced that, those lessons on discernment and how do you discern when someone is safe to trust? We just try to navigate it ourselves during a season of life when we still desperately need belonging and we'll sacrifice desperately just to feel like we belong. Does that make sense? <laughs> oh, it makes so much sense. And these are things that Beth and I talk about all the time, of course, but I grew up in a similar fashion, so a very religious household, and definitely received the messaging that to get love, absolutely, you have to do it this specific way. There wasn't a such thing as unconditional love, right? Like we were taught the words of that sometimes in, in the way I was raised, you know, with religion, sometimes also not, <laughs> but I never really had that demonstrated. It was instead, oh, you better do it this way. Like, oh, it's grace, but grace has some strings attached to it. And so it's interesting. I guess I never really thought of this as boundary work, but when you're talking about it, it makes so much sense, right? Because this is what I've been doing is going back and, and speaking to the many parts of my child self and saying like, hey, no, I, I hear you. And then I, I've linked it back, honestly, to not just like the illness itself that's physically manifested, but so many of the, the deepest wounds of my life and the shame and the guilt and the fear. And it makes sense as I say it, but when you feel that and embody it, it's such a different thing. So I'm connecting back and saying like, oh, oh. Why do I feel so angry right now? Okay. All right. What part of me is talking? And it's always that little child part that's saying, I'm not safe or I need love and no one's listening. And what do I do about that? And so the answer, like you said, when I was young was anything I can to sacrifice myself for someone else's emotions, anything I can to feel okay in this moment and the, the adults around me and the the peers around me so that they feel okay, then I'm okay. And that's my worth. That's my love. That's my everything. So this makes so much sense. And what a concept. If, if I had learned that when I was little, as a mm -hmm. little sensitive child, especially a highly, highly, highly sensitive and perceptive little child, I have no doubt that my life would be so different. And I'm so grateful for the path that I have been on. And truly, I can say going through the chronic illness has changed my life. But it, like you mentioned, Beth, boundaries and chronic illness are just hand in hand. They're tied. Well, the chronic illness is we are biopsychosocial beings. We are a combination of biology, psychology, and social environment. So it's nurturing in nature. But when our, it all starts with the social environment. In our social environment, when our need for protection and our need for love, unconditional love, when those needs are not met for protection, I call it protection and provision, provision of love and protection from danger. When those needs are not met, that is trauma. Mm -hmm. That is trauma. And, you know, there's a whole other podcast we could do just on trauma. But when you're looking at family dysfunction, 
family dysfunction is not just boundary violations like abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse. Well, absolutely, that is trauma. And most people would validate that as trauma, acknowledge that's trauma. We call that big T trauma because it's pretty obvious. But the little T trauma is when those needs for protection and provision are not met. So you weren't protected and your, your love needs were not met. Your need for affection and attention and approval and, and all of those things, which, by the way, we can have another discussion about, about that, about the needs. <laughs> Kids need seven positive interactions for every one negative interaction. Seven to one. That, that's tremendous when you think about that. And kids need a lot of correction. So for every correction, they need seven positive affirmations or just a hug or something, some sort of positive interaction, seven to one. If those needs are not met, that is trauma. So when either one of those happen, big T trauma or little T trauma, that's your social environment. But that affects us psychologically. So that's this biopsychosocial. Social experiences leads to psychological consequences, pain, shame, guilt, fear, grief, emotional discomfort. That then goes into a part of our brain where we try to make sense of those emotions that we don't even, we don't even have words for as a child. I just know I'm feeling them, but I don't know how to even put a word on it, let alone communicate. Mom, I'm feeling some shame right now. When you spoke to me that way, I feel shame. I need affirmation. I mean, kids don't have to do that. So that feeling that they don't even know how to process immediately goes into a part of their brain where they try to make sense of it with a belief. And that belief will always be about themselves because kids are developmentally egocentric until they get those double digit ages. It's my fault. It's about me. It's because of me. I should have. If I had gotten better grades, mom and dad wouldn't have divorced. And that's how I make sense of this pain that I'm feeling over mom and dad's divorce. So that's the psychology of our biology, of our makeup. That's how we process our external environment. So external experiences leads to internal pain. What do we do with that pain? That's our biology. Every one of us has a different biology. And our biology sets us up to cope with unprocessed internal pain that we've experienced because of our external social environment. <laughs> So we're all connected and our bodies all learn how to cope from shame, guilt, fear, grief, abandonment, rejection, neglect, whatever. Our biology will release that stress. It will release that pain somehow. For my husband, who started drinking when he was 12 and he is predisposed for addiction, that's a really good solution for him. His biology set him up to relieve some of that internal pain through alcohol. That works for him. It didn't work for me. I drink a beer and a half and I feel all yucky and bloated and ugh, I don't want anymore. It doesn't work for me, but I promise you, I will get a migraine that no amount of ibuprofen or Advil will get rid of for 24 hours at least. And I will literally vomit from my migraine. That's how my body releases the internal stress of fear or guilt or shame or grief. That's just how my body is wired to release that internal stress. Problem is, especially with behavioral type um, biology coping systems like addiction or like rage or, you know, other ways that our biology sets us up. Some of those ways that our bodies are, are set us up to cope are behavioral. 
And we learn at a young age that doing this behavior helps me feel better internally. So these behaviors, though, then affect the people in my environment, like my spouse and my kids. So now these behaviors that have always helped me cope are now affecting my children. And their social environment is one where they can't be honest about what they think, what they feel, what they want, what they don't want. And they learn not to trust anyone but themselves or learn to trust everyone except themselves. So how do they cope with that? Well, they have internal pain that they don't know how to process or deal with. And now they're going to find their own coping skills, which biology tends to be hereditary. <laughs> so addiction, believe it or not, there's a hereditary thing there. Um, so are migraines. So other you know, digestional issues or um, diabetes, these, they're things that we are often genetically predisposed to. And our bodies, will, that's how we'll learn to cope. And that those behavioral things, all of those things become a behavioral pattern, a generational pattern. So my behaviors that I'm using to cope are creating an environment for my children that's not healthy, that's creating internal pain, that they'll now find ways to cope with behaviorally that will affect their children. And it's just a pattern that continues over and over and over. If you're describing that, I'm thinking about using this migraine example or whatever physical condition comes as a result of these beliefs, then it's those beliefs that also impact how you handle that migraine or that physical condition. And yes. so if you're someone who holds these beliefs, like everyone else's needs are more important than mine, or I have to do things perfectly, or I can't take time off for myself because I have to take care of fill in the blank with whomever, Right. Then the body has to then talk louder to us. And so then it's like almost like we get into this self-reinforcing cycle of illness, right? And this generational piece that can feel so big and hard to break. But I guess if you're listening to this and feeling like, oh my gosh, this feels overwhelming and hopeless. And what do you do about all of this? Like you've got three people right here who they could well it to doing this kind of investigation and journey. And there is a way through. So hang in there. It can feel overwhelming. It can feel really big, but, but there are solutions. And first to see that, I think what you're laying out so clearly, Jackie, is like, this is how we get into this mess. And just to validate, like our parents or whomever your caregivers were probably doing the best they could with what they have. And yet somebody handed this to them and these religious structures in our spiritual communities, whether you're in the Christian faith or any faith or even in a spiritual group that has nothing to do with a specific faith, but it's around spirituality, harm happens in these groups. And it has nothing to do with the message of God or unity or whatever they're purporting. And so I guess I'm saying all of this to like put an emphasis on if you're sitting here, don't like have a shame spiral. Of, oh my gosh, that's me. She's talking about me. I'm so terrible. It's like, of course, of course you got into this situation right. and you're getting stuck. And so the good news is now you see it, there's a way to do something with it. Right, right. And I love that you mentioned that, um, especially with religion, because religion is all about following rules, but spirituality is about trusting. It's about trust. It's about healthy trust and relationship, ultimately with, with God, who is always trustworthy 100% of the time. But we grow up in an environment where our parents don't necessarily model that very trustworthy, safe person that God is. 
then we end up following religion instead of instead of relationship and, and trust. And we end up trying to get our needs met in unhealthy ways and protect ourselves in unhealthy ways. So it is a generational pattern. So I don't want anyone, you know, listening to feel hopeless because we have to start with how did I get here? How did I get here? And well, it's it's not your fault. It it's our, you know, our culture learns to to cope by um, hiding truth, your truth. We learn how to get our needs met by hiding our truth. One of the things that really keeps us in these very codependent, dysfunctional relationships with no boundaries is love hunger. Love hunger is usually at the root. And that kind, kind of gets us into this position where, or this place where, you know, how do I break my codependency and how do I start learning how to say no and set healthy boundaries. And well, we often um, have to start with the part of you that is love starved. We have to find the part of you that is not allowing you to say no, because it believes if I say no, then the one person in the world that can meet my love needs will leave me. Well, that's part of the problem. <laughs> this part of you is, is kind of believing that this one person and not having relationship with this one person is not an option. The inability to walk away and detach from someone who cannot meet your needs or who is hurting you is unhealthy. It's codependency. Boundaries is the ability to say, I love you, but this isn't okay. Or I love you, but this is what I'm needing. And then distance, whether it be financial distance, emotional distance, sexual distance, distance, whatever. Uh, here's how I'm going to protect myself until you're able to honor my request. The inability to do that is codependency. I cannot live without you being happy with me. So Say often, a little bit more about that, Jackie, about what codependency means. Yeah, codependency is when we are not able, it's the inability to detach from someone or something that is hurting you and not meeting your needs. And it can be a someone or something. My husband was codependent or dependent on alcohol. He couldn't walk away from it. He couldn't have one and a half drinks and walk away from it. When he had one, he had to have more than he could handle. He couldn't say no to it and walk away from it. So he was codependent or dependent with alcohol and alcohol. Guess what I was codependent with? Yeah, he was my addiction. My inability to walk away and detach from him to protect myself was my addiction. That's codependency. If you cannot walk away from someone or something, or if you cannot confront and be honest with someone or something that is hurting you and not meeting your needs, that is codependency. And the only thing that we should really be codependent on, it's our higher power. In the recovery program, step one is I've come to believe that I am powerless over alcohol. My life has become unmanageable. So you're recognizing that something that I've been trusting has created chaos in my life and I cannot, I can no longer manage my life. I am powerless over this thing or this person that I want to believe I can control and change. My husband wanted to believe and alcoholics and addicts want to believe that they can continue their relationship with their substance and manage it. I can control and change alcohol so that it won't make me drunk. 
maybe if I just drink before noon, <laughs> maybe if I just drink wine instead of beer and they try to have all, all these ways to try to change the way they drink so that they can still have relationship with the substance. I did the same thing with my husband. That was codependency. You know, when you're really struggling with boundaries and codependency, when you continue to try to change other people instead of accept that they may, may or may not, you know, they may not be willing to change and then detach from them or it. When I went through my own program of recovery in Al-Anon, um, the 12 steps of AA, they go through all the 12 steps and they read through the big book of AA and they go, and I, my sponsor, my Al-Anon sponsor said, we're going to do that the same. We're going to work this program, the 12 steps, the same way they do in Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, but I'm not an alcoholic. I don't need to do that. He's the problem. <laughs> She said, let me explain something to you. <laughs> and she said, we're going to read this book word for word. And anywhere that you see the word alcohol, we're going to replace that with John. And I was like, um, okay. So we read it and I'll be darned if it didn't describe me perfectly. My determination to fix and change him was no different than his determination to, to fix and change his relationship with alcohol so that he could continue to drink. But he couldn't control it because his biology set him up for that. I couldn't control him, but I couldn't walk away from him either. Not having a relationship with you is not an option. So you have to change. That's codependency. Determination to change other people and staying focused on changing other people and the inability to look at yourself and accept this person might not change. If they don't change, what do I need for me? What do I need? How do I need to detach? Do I need to detach um, emotionally? Do I need to detach functionally? Do I need physical distance? Do I need to reduce the amount of time I talk to this person? So when we talk about how do we create boundaries and what do boundaries look like, and there's different types of boundaries, emotional boundaries, sexual boundaries, financial boundaries, spiritual boundaries. But I often will just describe fad, frequency, activities, and duration. How frequently do you speak to this person? Maybe that needs to be reduced. What kind of activities are you doing with this person? Maybe that needs to change. When you do interact with this person, how long are you interacting with them? Maybe that needs to change. So what needs to change so that you feel protected from this person who refuses to change? It sounds like to do that, you first have to realize there's something going wrong. There has to be a realization that you're having needs or emotions or some experience that's not really fitting in this relationship. Something's getting crossed. And that seems to be a piece that I notice in the chronic illness community and just for myself, so like being able to acknowledge those things can sometimes be really, really hard. And, you know, I, I know for you, there's, there's a, such a strong belief in God. And some people are so unsure about that too, right? Where did they start? If they're not really sure there's a higher power, or if they don't know, like, I don't know if there's something bigger than me. How do you recommend people kind of grapple with that first step? Right. Well, a lot of times what we have to do is step back and try to help them undo the religious trauma that they may have experienced. Because <laughs> religious Trauma is when someone forces you to believe or behave in certain ways. And that's not my God. My God gives me the freedom to feel what I want to feel, 
believe what I want to believe and even do what I want to do. But he also lets me experience the consequences when I do what I want to do. But love cannot exist without the freedom to choose it. And if you force me to love you, that's not love, that's control. If you tell me how I have to behave in order to make you happy, that's not love, that's control. Now you can tell me in order to be close to me, here's my limit. So here's what I'm expecting or what I need. And then the more I do those things, the closer I feel to you, the more grateful I am for your, your presence in my life. And the more I want to continue behaving a certain way so that I can be close to you. But it's the difference between a want to and a have to. Religion tells you you have to. Spirituality gives you an experience of unconditional love and then makes you want to because you want more of that love. But what if you've never, never experienced that love? Why would you want to live a certain way? Where's the benefit? What's the benefit? Give me a reason to want to, to live a certain way. So a lot of times with people who have religious trauma, and even in the 12-step program, it's a very spiritual program, but we confuse spirituality with religion. And in the 12-step program, we often have people really push back on 12 steps because of all the mention of God. And that's why they use the terminology higher power, because religious trauma, it tells you that God is controlling and angry and vengeant. And that's not the kind of love that my God has. So we have to often step back and let them come into their own understanding of God. And who do you believe God should be? And usually what they describe is who God really is, not what religion taught them. So we have to start with, there has to be a power greater than yourself that can restore you to, to wholeness. And they say it's a sanity, but whether it's, you know, regardless of whatever, however your body is coping or whatever behavior or symptom you're experiencing to cope with internal pain, the first step is recognizing that whatever you're depending on is not God. And it's not you. So whatever you're, whoever or whatever you're doing to try to fix your problem, it doesn't have the power that you want it to have. So looking at what you're currently doing that's not working and who you're currently trusting or what you're currently trusting that's not working is kind of the first step in recognizing, okay, maybe I am powerless over this. Or maybe this thing that I'm trusting is, is not trustworthy. So what is? You first have to believe that there is a power greater than yourself or power greater than alcohol or power greater than doctors or power greater than, you know, whatever we are trusting. We still have to believe that there is some power greater than whatever we're trusting that is more trustworthy. And then, you know, the third step is whatever that is for you, surrender to it. Surrender to it. And that's the first three steps is there, you're not God. There is a God. Surrender to God. But who is God to you? And we often have to step back and look at the religious trauma that many of us experience. That is not spirituality, it's control. I find it so interesting. I think every talk we have pretty much always comes back to this idea of love, um, which is very, I just find it interesting personally because I did experience so much religious trauma. And I know one of the first questions I started asking, Beth, you know this about me, <laughs> when I first started going down this journey of like, I want real healing. I don't want 
physical healing. I want like real healing. And that might be the side effect, but even if it's not, I'm okay. And the question I kept asking is, God, I need to know like what or who or how or whatever you are. And the only answer I just kept getting back over and over was this idea of love. And so for me, it was like very detached from religion completely, actually. I needed it to be completely detached from religion. I still need that. But I think it's just interesting hearing you describe this because there's so many, everything is so interconnected. When I think about this healing journey and hearing you speak about like 12-step program and that, and I've had family members also who have gone through that, I think I always thought of it so separate as well. Well, that's for someone with addiction, but I'm realizing it does come back to this idea of a surrender to love, right? There's, there's no amount of control that we can have. And that's where the fear, the shame, everything comes from. For me, anyhow, I'll speak too, but I think probably most people that's true, right? we feel unsafe or we feel unseen or we feel unloved. And so we need to control that in some way. And so when I feel a part of me come up or when I feel something that I know just needs some more love and some more healing, it's always attached to this idea. And Beth and I have this little meme that we sent back and forth of this octopus in the ocean and it's um, holding on. And we're like, how many tentacles are you holding on with today? The meme says, though, look, I'm letting go. And they have, of course, just like two of the tentacles off the rock. And so that's the visual I get when we're talking about this. When I talk about anything, there is such a huge component of surrender. And I think the words can be challenging for someone. I know for me, they were challenging, right? Around like God or religion or words like that. But it is this deep, deep, deep trust and this deep surrender. For me, the word that comes up always is love, but it can be whatever to someone internally. So I just, I find it so fascinating. And I think it's just so interesting that this is where our talk about boundaries led because in my head, boundaries were this very neat category of you need to set this boundary and you need to do this thing. Instead, it's like, no, it's kind of just everything. And it's not just a boundary isn't just, oh, someone I know is doing this and I feel this way. So I need to set this boundary. I find it within myself even sometimes where I'll be like, wow, this is coming up and this is coming up. Do I need to set a boundary with myself in the most loving, gentle way? And so I just find it fascinating. I don't have an exact question to go from there, but I just wanted to put that out there. You know, the beauty of it is, um, you know, we're talking about God and, and love and we all have the image of God in us. And in the therapy that I do, it's called internal family systems. The concept is we all have a true self. Um, The founder of IFS, internal family systems, Dick Schwartz, calls it self-energy. He grew up scientific atheist. So there's no religious or spiritual background at all. He just began noticing that when he's working with clients, they all seem to have this sense of self at their core that isn't damaged by their past experiences. And it has this natural compassion and love. And from that love, it has the power to heal all these different parts of them. So what he discovered and what he stumbled on was the spirit of God that exists in all of us. That is love. We all have the capacity to love. And when we go inside and we find that those young parts of us that are love starved, or that, that feel alone. And I can't even tell you how many times when I finally get to the root of when we're doing therapy and we finally get to the root of those very vulnerable parts of them that other parts of them have been trying to protect and avoid their whole lives, they feel alone. They often feel alone and they were just alone. And what they need is the love of the client's true self that is naturally compassionate and calm and courageous and kind and just love. Dick Schwartz calls them the eight C's. 
there's calm, compassion, courage, confidence, clarity, connectedness, creativity, all these wonderful C words. In the Christian world, we call it the fruits of the spirit in Galatians. So of course, Dick Schwartz, he didn't know what that was, but that's what that's what we're helping clients access is that self, that energy, that spirit, that core of your being that is love. And when we're able to connect that with those very young parts stuck in the past that were abandoned, neglected, rejected, um, abused in one of many ways, that's when the healing happens. And we reparent those parts of us that are carrying the shame and the guilt and the fear and the false beliefs that they use to make sense of mom and dad divorcing or whatever happened. And we reparent, it's a reparenting experience from that love at the core of ourself because we're created in the image of God. That's when the healing happens. And when that happens, if you think about the biopsychosocial, when we heal the psychology and the thoughts and the feelings that resulted from the external experiences, when we heal that and we heal that inner child, the biology that we're just set up for to cope, whether it be addiction or migraines or, you know, digestional issues, whatever it is, those symptoms start to fade because that biology is trying to help you avoid the pain that you have now healed. And we can't change the past, but we can reparent the parts of us that are stuck in the past. And that heals the shame and the guilt and the fear and the, and the false beliefs and all those burdens that are connected to the experiences that should never have happened in the first place. It instinctively helps you reparent parent your real children in a different way. And it sounds like the reparenting has to be around the idea of love, which for people I'm realizing can be a word that is really even more loaded than God. This came up with one of our podcast interviewees recently. We were having this all like God's a triggering word, but she was like, love's a triggering word. And it really, it it showed me something around like, yeah, even that, because so often growing up, you're told this is love. And our language, it confuses so much of this experience that we're talking about. And that's one of the things that Desiree and I love about talking about parts work and how you're offering this, whatever you want to call it, love, compassion, clarity, courage, you know, all the, all the C's Dick Schwartz came up with, but we are talking about some universal truth. And in this team up just working with clients this past week, because I also do IFS, I had a client who's Buddhist and he was like, oh my gosh, this is just Buddhism, you know? And I'm like, I'm not familiar with Buddhism, but could you tell me more? And he's like, this is Buddha nature. And then the same day I had a client who's Christian and he was like, and Jesus is here healing. I mean, it was just, and so I'm just (laughs) noticing we have all of this language and in another therapy I do, they call it the internal healing intelligence. And so if you're tracking this conversation and the words are freaking you out or you're getting triggered, like take the words out and maybe sit with what it is we're pointing at, because there's something true that we're pointing to. That is, it is the healer that's in all of us. And that is the vital part to reconnect is what I'm hearing, Jackie, around boundaries, because we cannot have boundaries if we're not connecting in with the love of ourself, right? Because I'm putting everybody else's needs and I'm just like an open door and maybe letting all of these people in who shouldn't and also keeping bad in. So all of the negative stuff I've picked up, I'm like a lint brush. 
I mean, this was, this was true for me and it's just like sticking to me. Right. And so I'm not, I'm not yeah. watching who's coming in and making sure the bad stays out. And then I'm keeping the bad that got in really close to me. And that is just a recipe for disaster. But going back to love heals, whatever this thing is, we're pointing at God, love, spirit, source, internal healing, intelligence. It's that, that we're trying to give to ourselves and then set these parameters of like, you can't come in here. That's not healthy for me. That's not okay. Right. And you can't really truly love anyone else well unless you first love yourself. You can't. It's not possible. It's funny. I often will show, um, Brene Brown does a presentation on trust and what is trust. And she researched trust. What is trust? And the number one thing was boundaries. You cannot have trust without boundaries. If you're not honest about your limits and you make me guess or get mad at me when I violate them because I didn't know them, that's not trust. If, if I'm not honest with you or if I am honest with you about my limits and my boundaries and you violate them, that's not trust. So boundaries is a big part. Um, but when she often, when she talks about trust and describes it, she's talking about self-trust and self-love. And she quotes Maya Angelou who says, um, I don't trust someone who says, I love you, but they don't love themselves. Mm. You cannot give what you do not have. But love is trust plus commitment. So if you don't trust yourself, it's very difficult to love yourself. When you grow up in an environment where you've learned, I can't trust myself, then how could you possibly love yourself? And if you don't love yourself, how can you fully love others? So it all starts with loving yourself, but it actually starts before that. It starts with experiencing God's love from others, through others. And that's a whole other conversation about the need for community and creating a, self, a healthy external environment before you can go inside and find your internal and heal your internal environment. We often have to back up when I'm doing that really deep IFS work and we have parts that just do not trust self. Because self is still in relationship with toxic people. So your parts don't trust you to protect them because you're not protecting yourself in the present. So your young parts in the past don't trust you because now as an adult, you're still not protecting yourself from unhealthy, toxic people. So we often have to back up from that internal therapy work and restructuring the internal system and start restructuring the external system and start doing some education about boundaries and what is love? What is safe people? What is trust? And what do boundaries look like with un unsafe people who are not safe to trust? So we have to often back up and look at boundaries before we can go inside and do that internal restructuring and reparenting. Just to piggyback off of that, a quick question then, since obviously this is all about boundaries, outside of more obvious examples, so if someone's abusive or there's addiction, those sort of things you say, yeah, of course, I shouldn't say it's this obvious from internally, but from an outside perspective, of course you need to put a boundary up, right? What about those more subtle boundaries? How do you know when you need to set a boundary, right? Like, is it a feeling inside? Is it like, how are you certain? And it is confusing, I think, for a lot of people, myself included, when I first started and still sometimes because of that messaging and that conditioning you receive, right? You're like, am I feeling guilt because of this? Or do I really need to put a boundary? Or is this, you know, it's, it's hard to tease that out. Yeah. And that's where the internal work comes in. It a lot of times it's anger. If you're mm. feeling angry, some part of you is wanting you to say no, and you're not listening to that part of you, and it's going to hijack you. That angry part is going to say no for you. Your only boundary is your anger. 
anger is telling you anger is not bad. The behavior that follows anger, if you don't listen to it, is often not acceptable. But the feeling of anger itself isn't bad. It's telling you, say no, ask for what you want or say no to something that you don't want. And when we don't listen to that part of you that's saying, say no, set some boundaries, ask for what you need, that part, that anger will eventually manifest either physically and you'll have the physical symptoms or you'll, it'll turn into rage or you'll end up going to drink. That part of you getting to know your internal world and I'm feeling some sort of way about this. I need a minute to process. And then you step back and you go find your safe people and you process it and you let the anger speak for itself. And eventually what we usually land on is ask for what you want or say no to what's happening. That's usually, anger is usually the number one clue that there needs to be some boundaries in place. You usually have been talking about anger and in the chronic illness community, how there's really that Gabor Mate is a psychiatrist. So he kind of listed out these different variables of people who end up developing chronic illness, cancer, et cetera. And one of them was repressed anger, anger that's healthy, that's not being expressed or acted upon in some way. And so I think what you're speaking to makes so much sense. And it, it, this comes up a lot for people that I work with where they ask sort of like, what's the difference between setting a boundary and manipulation, right? Like, what is the difference between saying, this is what I need or expect or want, and therefore, if I don't get that, the following is going to happen versus I'm going to set this line to, to make you do something. Does that make sense what I'm right. asking? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a good question because we often confuse boundaries with manipulation. And here's how you know. If I set a boundary and I'm requesting for you to, to stop doing something, or to start doing something. And then I say, if you don't, here's what I'm going to do to respond. So it's kind of a warning of the consequence or the detachment that will follow. If I don't follow through with what I said I would do, if you don't honor that boundary, then I'm really just manipulating, trying to make you change. So an inability to enforce the consequence or the warning when the, when the boundary is violated is how you know. So if I said... Beth, you're yelling at me and I really can't think clearly when you yell. I'd really like for you to speak calmly so we can have this conversation more productively. And you keep yelling at me. And I say, Beth, if you keep yelling at me, I'm going to leave the room. And then I step back and I wait. So there's the warning. And you keep yelling at me. If I don't leave the room and I continue to just warn you over and over and now get angry at you and try to make you change... That was manipulation because I didn't follow through with leaving the room. So now you're yelling at me. You continue to yell at me and I don't leave the room. Instead, I say, Beth, you're yelling at me. Beth, you're yelling. I, I told you, if you don't quit yelling at me, I'm going to, I'm going to hit you or whatever I, you know, whatever I do, I'm going to just keep yelling at you. And now it's, now we're in a dog out fight because I did not follow through with the consequence. I really wasn't trying to protect myself. I was trying to make you change. That really, piece. Okay. Right. I'm really hearing that now. It's really about I'm doing something with me versus I'm making you do something. Right. Here's my request. If you don't honor my request, I'm going to protect myself by hanging up the phone, by leaving the room, by distancing somehow. That's how I'm going to protect myself if you don't honor my request. 
if you don't honor my request and I don't then move into that protection of self, whatever that looks like, instead, I continue to engage with you. I was never really setting a boundary for self-protection. I was setting a boundary to manipulate you and make you change. Mm-hmm. And when you don't change and I don't change <laughs> the way I'm responding to you, I was manipulating, just trying to make you change. I hear that. I think we probably all inadvertently do that sometimes. Like I'm thinking of times where I certainly will try to set a boundary and I don't really follow through with it. And I'll have to chew on that one for a minute because it's... Right. Yeah. We want to avoid the loss and grief of the detachment mm-hmm. or the distance from whatever we're wanting to stay engaged with. I don't want to be without you. I don't want to leave the room. I don't want to hang up the phone because a young part of me that's love starved needs connection with you. And I don't want to have to feel that grief and loss and loneliness that will come when I distance from you. So to avoid that feeling of sadness and grief and loneliness, I'll stay engaged. That makes a lot of sense. Gosh, I feel like I could talk about boundaries for the rest of my life and still probably need to work on them. They're so challenging. (laughs) I'm so appreciative that you gave us this information, Jackie. I know you mentioned a book earlier. It sounds like that would be really helpful for people who are of the Christian faith. Do you have any boundaries, materials for people who maybe are outside of that belief system? Um. Brene Brown has some boundary stuff, a lot of shame stuff. And shame is usually at the root of our inability to enforce boundaries, to communicate boundaries and enforce consequences. Um, There's a lot out there. I would just Google it. Boundaries are a huge, huge topic. I mean, volumes and volumes have been written on boundaries. But um, faith-based communities really have a hard time embracing those concepts because we have a, a skewed understanding of what love is. And we think that love does not include the word no. And that's not love. Truth without love is um, harmful. It's very harmful. But love without truth is enabling. we got to have both. Boundaries are a universal topic that's not just a biblical concept. It's, it's actually the Christian community that has a harder time accepting that, I think, in my experience, seems to be. Thank you so much, Jackie. Is there a website or contact information that people could reach you if they wanted to learn more about your services? I don't have a website, um, but you have my number. So you can get in touch with me that way or they can get in touch with me that way. Okay, great. Thank you so much for being here. Thank everyone for listening. We're just so appreciative of this community and these conversations. I think they're so important and as hard as they can be are just so healing ultimately. So thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.